Good morning, church family. Good morning. Thank you, Avery. At least Avery's with me today. That's good. All right. Um, while they're transitioning off stage, a couple of things I wanted to remind you of. Tonight we'll be in Philippians 6 o'clock. There'll be a preschool choir and children's choir. Adults, please join me in the sanctuary on the other side down there as we go through this book together. It'll be a blessing. I promise you we will enjoy that. Uh, in addition to this, all senior adults, there's not as many senior adults in this crowd. There wasn't the other one. But if you're a senior adult and you don't have lunch plans Thursday, please have, have lunch with me. I would love to have lunch with you here at the church. And even if you're not a senior adult and you still just want to come and have lunch with us, please come and have lunch with us. 1230 in the fellowship hall. We're going to do a quick devotion. We're just going to have lunch together, and that's it. There's no plan or nothing. We're just enjoying the fellowship of one another, okay? So please make that a priority if you are able. All right. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke 23, verses 26 through 30. We are now working our way through and moving our way through Jesus on the cross. And we have seen here from the crowds, the cheering of, we want Barabbas, we don't want Christ. And the true condition of the human heart is this, we prefer darkness to light, we do not want the king of glory, we want to be our own kings, is the call behind that call for Barabbas. And now we are heading towards the cross, we are heading towards Calvary, Golgotha, as Michael mentioned just a minute ago. Uh, as I read this text today, I want to draw your attention to some things. Luke is a master with words, and he is taking the words of this text, and he is drawing your attention to some critical things. The beautiful thing about the cross of Christ and the gospel is that the Lord did not just want us to have an account of Jesus on the cross. If that were the case, we would only have one, but we have the richness of how many? Four different gospels. And what that means is each author offers a different sort of, uh, I don't know if I would say take, but a different understanding uh, that is not different from the others, but rather pull together in unity to show us who Christ is in more fullness. Does that make sense? So it's similar to this. If we were to ignite a huge bonfire out here in the parking lot, which I am not encouraging, but I'm using this for illustration purposes, and one of you stood on the north side of the fire, one on the south, one on the east, one on the west, you would all be seeing the same fire, but you would see it from a different perspective. And there would be parts and, and attributes of that fire that you could highlight that the others around the fire would not be able to see. And we have a richness here in the text today. There are some unique things in the text today that are not in the other three that I'm going to try to draw your attention to and pull out today and see what those implications are. So here's the word of God this morning, church. Hear it. And as they laid him away, they seized one, Simon of Caesarea, who was coming in from the country, or Cyrene, excuse me, from Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Amen. May God have blessed in the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. 
I pray he writes his truth on all of our hearts today because, say it with me if you know it, church, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. So if I were to give a subtitle to each of the Gospels, uh, I'll just do two, for example, today because we're mainly in Luke. I would say for Matthew, I would put the subtitle as Jesus as King. And for Luke, I would put the subtitle Jesus as Prophet. In this text today, we are seeing the attribute here of Jesus as prophet, perhaps the last. The way that this is constructed, this is one of the last great Old Testament calls here before the cross and before the resurrection. It sounds very much like that. Now, as you know, I've talked about Jesus being a prophet before, and prophets have a lot of what? Bad news, right? Usually prophets don't come into town and people are jeering to hear from prophets. They usually have bad news to share. But there's hope in a prophet being sent. Why is there hope in a prophet being sent? Because the Lord does not want us left in that bad news and condition. But there is a call for hope and repentance in that. And we see that in the text. There is a town, I don't know if you know this or not, there is a town in Germany where they have been doing a passion play every 10 years since 1660. Every year since 1660. And everybody in this little village takes a different role in this play. And whoever takes the role of Judas Iscariot is sort of isolated and ostracized by the town for that amount of time while they do this role. Uh, I've always wanted to see it. I've heard about it for years. Uh, One person in the first service said they've actually seen this play. But it happens once every 10 years. Like clockwork. The only time it didn't happen was 2020 during covid 19, but uh, they're planning on doing another one here soon. So if I ever get a chance, I want to go to Germany. I want to see this play. There are roles that the people there play. In a similar fashion here in this text, Luke is drawing our attention and drawing us into this text with several things. We have already seen where Jesus has sort of given the wounded love, that's what one person told me, the wounded love stare that he gave to Simon as he was there in the courtyard while Jesus stood on trial. And here in this text today, we are meeting another Simon. That was Simon Peter who is fleeing from the cross. And this Simon Peter, or this, this Simon is just coming into town. He's, he's from an a area of the world. It's his North Africa. Uh, and there's a settlement of about 100,000 Jews in the area that he lives in there. Later, it will become a bastion for early Christianity. But at this point, it's an early Jewish settlement. And as he's coming into town, I've oftentimes thought about this gentleman here and uh, the conversation he must have had when he went back home to North Africa after leaving Jerusalem from the Passover. When he gets back, uh, Mom, Dad, you won't believe as I was entering Jerusalem, a strange thing happened today. <laughs> I was entering the town, and as I got into town, I was, I was compelled. Some of your verses actually say that in this verse. I was compelled under Roman authority to carry the cross of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And I watched them crucify him, and it was really just gut-wrenching to see all of that happen. Uh, This man, by the way, as best we can tell, later became a believer. Did you know that? We actually have some records that we think point to this fact. He uh, is listed in Romans. Paul talks about greeting Rufus and his brother, I think, Alexander. And I think this was their father. This man here is referenced there. And so Paul seems to have a familiarity with him. So this man appears to be somebody who later comes to Christ and is saved. In fact, you might can make a case for he's one of the first true disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to make that case today, but you could 
in fact, make that case because one of the things that he's doing in this text that is opposite from the Simon that we've already seen flee in the dark is he's taking up, remember what Jesus said a few chapters back and oh, what was it, chapter 9 and 14? If anyone wants to be my disciple, they must take up their cushion and follow me, right? That's what it says, sorry. They must take up their pillow and follow me. Isn't that what it says? Take up their pillow and follow me. No, friend, it was take up their cross and follow me. Another thing that is unique in this construction here, uh, by the way, um, I know, how many of you have seen like the Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson made? Anybody have seen that before? A few of you. Did you know in that movie and in a lot of the movies about Christ going to the cross in this section from the beating to the cross where they walk and Simon takes the cross, most people assume they put the cross on Jesus and he falls down. Did you know that the Gospels do not record Jesus falling down under the weight of the cross, that it's not written anywhere, that that's just sort of a tradition that we've emblazed in our minds. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, it's just not there. He might have. He might have fallen under the weight of the cross physically. I mean, most people would have not survived the beating that he took, but there is no record in the Gospel that he fell under the weight of the cross. It doesn't state that, that I can recall. Anyhow, so back to this section here. And it says here, to carry it... And, and he's the only gospel writer that says this, that Simon carries it behind Jesus. So he's the only author that points out that Simon carries this cross behind Jesus. Well, what are we learning here from Simon? A few things. This is our role if we're to be disciples of Jesus. First of all, we are to be a people who are compelled to take up that cross and follow behind Jesus. What are we compelled by? Right? Some of your translations say that. He was, compelled. he was compelled by the Roman soldiers. Some of us are compelled because we think if we'll just behave ourselves in a certain way, we will somehow earn some favor with God. And I'm here to tell you that compulsion, that compelling there that you're after is incorrect. And if that's what you're seeking and desiring, you will find yourself coming up short. We are not compelled by doing to get favor, but rather... We as Christians and believers are compelled by the nail-scarred hands of Christ in the example of giving himself as a one-time gift to sacrifice for the wrath of God so that you and I, on Jesus' worst day, when the forces of hell are unleashed to do their very worst, his worst day provides for you and I the best that we could ever have. So we are compelled as disciples to take up the cross and follow Jesus because of the nail-scarred hands that he shows us. Second of all, we are to bear a cross. We are to bear a cross. Jesus told us, take up your cross and follow me. Here's one of the beautiful things about being a believer. One of the beautiful things about being a believer is that it makes life simple. It does not make life easy, but it makes life simple. What is right and what is wrong is simple and clear. The ethics that we have been handed are simple and clear. As Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I find hard to understand that bother me. It's the easy parts that bother me, right? So your life becomes incredibly simple. But it's not easy, right? When I was in seminary, I, was, uh, I had to select a people group and write a paper about the gospel and the mission work that was done there and how the gospel took hold. The group that I was assigned was Fiji. Has anybody ever been to the Fijian Islands? Fiji out in the Pacific West out there in the, in the Pacific Ring. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Do you at least drink the bottle of waters with Fiji on it? Do you, is that close enough for you? Okay. So I had to write about Fiji. I had to read about all these different things. Did you know the first Methodist missionary 
that went to the Fiji Islands to share the gospel, they killed him and ate him. They ate everything but his belt buckle and his boots, his boots on his feet. Somebody in the first service didn't hear the O's, or I guess, or the T whenever I said that. So anyway, they said, make sure you pronounce that. So they did not eat his boots or his belt buckle. And the reason they didn't eat that is because they couldn't chew it to get it down. That's why they didn't eat that part. So they completely cannibalized him and ate him, which was a common thing in the Pacific uh, circle there. And they kept going, kept being faithful. And finally, many in the nation of Fiji came to Christ. It was like a revival broke out and they came to Christ. And it was very evident that it was there because when they began to understand the gospel and understand the Great Commission, they became burdened for their neighbors in Papua New Guinea. The people of Papua New Guinea were lost and they were cannibals just like the Fijians were. And so what did they do? They packed the missionaries of Fiji who were burdened by the lostness of Papua New Guinea, packed up their stuff in a casket that they built and they took their stuff in their casket to Papua New Guinea knowing they would never come home and they may suffer the same fate as that first missionary who went to Fiji. Those guys got it. Here's what it means to carry your cross. It is that you are carrying the means of your own death. Christians know that. Those early missionaries knew that. We have somehow lost some of that in our modern living. The other thing here is disciples of Christ follow Jesus in bearing that cross now. Many of us will probably not have the opportunity, most of us in this room, I'll say it this way, will probably not have the opportunity to build your own casket, put your stuff in it, and go to Papua New Guinea to try to share the gospel with a hospital people group. So that's probably not most of us in here. Some of you might, most of you will not, right? But let me tell you something that concerns me, where you are and where you live day to day, all right? Can I do this? Can I put this in your kitchen where you live every day? All right. Most of us may be presenting a crossless Christ and a crossless Christianity. This bothers me as a pastor. I see this a lot. You say, Pastor Travis, what does a crossless Christ and a crossless Christianity look like? I thought a lot of time thinking about this. And here's what I think it looks like. I think a crossless Christianity and one who subscribes to that will be marked by the following things. They will be seen by outsiders and others around them as being successful, largely. Uh, They will have it all together from an outsider's perspective. They will know all the answers. They will never make any mistakes. They will strive and strut through this world as if they own it. That is a demonstration of crossless Christianity. What does that sound like? Sounds like 21st century evangelicalism in America is what it sounds like. You know what it emerges from? It emerges from lip and life that is devoid of carrying a cross behind Christ. You know, a crossless Christianity is futile. It is useless. It is dangerous. And it is catastrophic in its consequences. It conveys a standard that nobody in this room lives by. Nobody in here does. 
Let me see if I can test you with this just so that I can make my point a little further. How many of you in this room have all the answers? Hmm? Which of you will stand up and say you have it all figured out to the, to the last little dot of the lowercase j and the t in the Bible? Heck, if we were honest, half of us in here don't even know the right questions to ask, much less the answers that are needed. How many of you in here... <laughs> hmm. How many of you in here are actually living quiet lives of desperation. You haven't let others know in the church because you're afraid that they actually have it all together and you don't, so you're not ready to show the cross that you bear because you have no idea that they're also bearing one and living a life of quiet desperation as well. You know, is your life all together? Are you crying out in the night sometimes in moments of deep desperation? No. The world that is around us and the people that are around us are hopeless and broken. Do we understand this? They're hopeless and broken. Their life has zero contact with any hope usually. And then when somebody from the walls of Grace Baptist or fill in the church, whatever you want to in the community, walks in smugly with all the answers and success and life and all that and appears as if there is no cross for them to bear whatsoever, it's impossible for people that are far from the Lord to one, relate to you and two, see themselves as being a follower of this kind of Savior. They have no hope. They have no possibility of hope. And they feel the world is crushing it around them. The last thing they need is a self-satisfied, smuggy person walking right past them saying, I trust Christ. Everything will be just fine. No. They need to see the struggle. They need to see the cross. They need to see that you're a human being. They need to see that. Right? I was listening to Alistair Begg once, and he was talking about this issue. He talked about a radio station. This is fitting since Michael works at a radio station. Talking about a radio station. People call in. This woman called in on a Friday night to a Christian radio station. Hello, who am I online with? Oh, this is Amber. Hello, Amber. What are you doing tonight? Well, I'm at home. Oh, okay. I'm an 18-year-old mother at home. Oh, okay. How old is your baby? Two years old. Good. Well, how's it going tonight, Amber? The radio host, I think, was hoping for some sort of a bubbly comeback. And Amber said, to be honest, not too well. Not too well. Here this woman was, crying out in the middle of the night to a radio station for help. Not to say anything of the addicts that we have in our county who are trapped under the weight of their own addiction, who are <laughs> trying their best, some of them, to come out of it, but without Christ and without a change of heart, without the gospel, it is somewhat of a hopeless endeavor. They can't see some kind of struggle. They just look to us and see perfection only and no cross to bear behind Christ. There will be little to no hope for those grasping for straws as they're sinking in the mire of their own sin. You understand what I'm telling you today? Amen if you do. Okay, two of you do. Good. The rest of you will think about it the rest of the day, right? 
What else do we have here? We have a spectrum of sorrow. A spectrum of sorrow. Look what he says here. Um, it says here that there was a great multitude of people. One thing that's interesting to see as Luke kind of draws all of his words in sort of a masterful way, uh, book ending, the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. When Jesus is in the temple and Anna prophesies over him, it says he will bless all the people. He'll be a blessing to all the people. Here it says a great multitude of the people are following him here. Also makes a reference here of the women who were mourning and lamenting. A couple things about these women. First of all, it was, this is just an observation from Luke, so you can take it for whatever it's worth. Luke has multiple accounts where he goes out of his way to highlight women in the ministry of Jesus. And might I add this, there is not one account in the Gospel of Luke of women acting or behaving hostily towards Jesus Christ. I don't know why that is, but he doesn't have one recorded. That may have happened, but it's not in the Gospel of Luke. In addition to this, these women, there's kind of a group here, you know, these Roman oppressors would come in and they would execute these Jews. And there would be a group of women who would mourn them as they went to the cross. These these foreign invaders executing our Jewish men, (coughs) it's not right. And they would feel a sadness from that. And they were moved by that and they would lament that and, and cry and mourn for it. Jesus here is saying, that yes, you know, it's sad what's happening to Jesus, that he is facing the cross, that he is facing hell's worst, that he is facing the wrath of the Roman government, but worse yet, the wrath of God poured out upon himself. This beautiful picture of the gospel here. And as sad as that is, Jesus is saying, that's not what you should be mourning, right? It is sad that Jesus dies. Sadder still, any who die without Jesus, right? He goes on to make this point very clear. He says what? Uh, Daughters of Jerusalem. This feels a bit like the lament, the prophetic lament that he had. Oh, Jerusalem, if you would only have come to me. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Now, why would Jesus say that? Jesus knows his vindication's coming. He knows that he'll go to the cross. He'll die a horrific death. On the third day, he'll be raised. He'll take his position at the right hand of the Father once he's made his resurrected body and appearance and teachings final. And then he will reign there until he comes back in final judgment. His vindication's coming and coming and coming. So you don't need to be mourning for him. It's all going to be good for him. Okay? He knows where he's going. He knows the plan. He knows what's going to unfold. Don't mourn for me. But... For your children. Verse 29, for behold, the days are coming. And you'll say, Blessed are those who blessed are the barren, those who've never had children, right? You know, I was reading an article today. I don't know if this is true or not. I I can I I think it's probably true because of the people who wrote it, and I I don't trust them, but I trust their own self-interest. Does that make sense? I trust their greed. I trust that this is a greedy people, and they're trying to figure out where to invest money in the future. And they are predicting by the year 2030 that half of the eligible women in the United States that are able to be married will not be married and will never be married. Half of the female population in the United States will not be married by 2030 and will have either no intention or will never marry by 2030. They will remain single the rest of their life. So this company is investing in like box wine and cat toys and all these things for all these like perpetually single women on down the line. I, no joke. I read this story. It's, it's crazy and it's sad, right? There will be, be a barrenness, right? Uh, Jesus here is saying, 
it's not just talking about women being barren here. What, he is, what is he talking about? He's talking about in the days when the wrath of God is poured out. Things that are normally joyous, like the announcement of a new child, right? The announcement of the birth of a new child. That should be a joyful thing, should it not? I'm going to try that again. The announcement of a new child, that should be a joyful thing, should it not? Yes. Thank you, yes. But the, days will be, the, the judgment of God and the things will have perpetuated and dwindled so poorly that on that day, things will the, the announcement of a child will be seen as a burden and an awful thing that that child will have to endure, not a good thing. Now, at a minimum, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen in 70 A.D., which is 30 or so years in the future, 30, 40 years in the future. What's going to happen? Well, General Titus from Rome will come through and he will demolish the temple and he will flatten the rebellion of Jerusalem. And the children and the mothers and the men that are putting Christ on the cross here in Jerusalem are jeering for him. They will suffer. Now let me say this before, you get, before I get too far into this. Children will suffer whenever they march in. I don't think children are as innocent as Hollywood wants you to think they are. I do think all children are born in sin. The Bible tells us that, that we're kind of passes that sin line passes down from Adam all the way to us. But I'll say this about children. They are innocent of not contributing to as much collective sin as their parents and grandparents. They just haven't been alive long enough to do it. I don't think they're particularly more special than their parents. They just haven't had enough time to sin as long as we've been around to sin, right? Uh, I've seen a lot of, as a pastor, ageism where one generation thinks they're superior to the other, right? So older generations think they're superior to younger generations, and younger generations think they're superior to older generations, right? Because we can use iPhones and do all these different technology. And old people say, well, you can't do the old ways. And both of you need to stop it, right? You're both a bunch of sinners that need Christ. And you need to get along in the body and move forward with great commandments and great commission. I'm so sick of generationalism. I can't stand it as a pastor, right? I'm sick of it. Make friends with old people and make friends with young people. doesn't matter what age they are, right? So there's an innocence here. All will suffer when this happens. Children will be subject to suffering for that, and it'll be hard when that happens. And harder still when the final days of judgment come on the Lord. He alludes to this, right? What does he say here? Verse 30, Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For in those, when, the wood, when the wood is green, so as bad as things are now, Wood is green right now. We all, everybody hears from the mountains. We all know what he means by wood is green. I'm not preaching in downtown New York. You all know what it means when you try to light a piece of wood that just got cut down on fire. What's it do? Snap crackles and pops and takes forever to catch and ignite, doesn't it? Because it's full of sap and it's full of water. It's full of moisture. But when, that, when you get that good dry wood, like out of Zach's basement, the good dry stuff, right? Stuff lights up beautifully. Doesn't smoke near as bad. It works perfectly here. You know, Jesus here is alluding to what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights with Daniel, right? Daniel, we're working our way through that in Daniel chapter 8. He talks about a limit of, trans, you know, a limit of sins. It's almost like God allows sin to be poured and people make the mistake and think that just because God delays judgment that there won't be judgment. Don't make this mistake and think delayed judgment means no judgment. That's not the case. Even Jesus here is alluding to that with this final prophetic statement that he makes, right? So this seems pretty, pretty bleak, doesn't it? Seems pretty dark, but there's hope here. There is hope in this text too. Look at this, a word of hope. 
Even in Christ's suffering, Jesus is still focused on others. This guy is about to go and experience the worst, most horrific form of execution ever created, crucifixion, which is, by the way, basically just smothering because you have to push up to keep yourself breathing the whole time. They had to make a word for it called excruciating. You ever heard somebody say, I'm in excruciating pain? That's like the worst type of pain that you can have. They had to make a word to describe it because no word quite covered how horrific dying on a cross was. And here he is facing this, but on the way up, in the midst of his suffering and facing a... um, a horrific death, a, a death that has pain that has not been tasted by anybody except those who have died afterwards here. Jesus here is focused on others, right? It's just like in, in the Last Supper where he says, this is my body, this is my blood for you. He's concerned about the disciples. He's concerned about us down through the generations and through history. And even in his death here, he is warning us of the coming judgment. He is warning us here of the coming judgment when the wood is finally dry and the wrath of God is set to consume. And here is what we're seeing in this text. And this is what Jesus is telling us. The last, one of the last great prophecies here of, of the Old Testament prophets, the greatest prophet of all time, Jesus Christ. It feels a bit to me like Psalm 212. You know what Psalm 212 says? It says this, kiss the son, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. You know, when it says here, they run to the hills. They're not running there to take refuge and to hide from God. They're running into those and calling out for them to crush them so that they could be destroyed and escape the wrath of God. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Revelation 6 and what John sees whenever the sixth seal is broken. In verse 12, here's what he writes. When I opened the sixth seal and I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gall. The sky vanished like a scroll. And that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Could you imagine it? I mean, what would you do if you walked outside today and we are positioned beautifully here in a valley surrounded by mountains and there were no more mountains? First of all, I would cry because have you ever like driven through southern Illinois or Kansas? It is awful. Like, I don't know what these people... I don't know what they live for. It's terrible. Like, like they go out of their, they go outside. It has to be Christ. I mean, they don't have Christ. It's utterly hopeless. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, what one friend of mine who had to drive through Southern Illinois, I mean, you just go for miles and miles. Has anybody done this drive on 64 through to St. Louis? Like you go miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. It doesn't feel like you've moved at all because the scenery is exactly identical everywhere. It's all flat and nothing. This is terrible. It's like I'm not making any progress at all. This must be what purgatory is like if it were real. You know what I mean? Like you're just, it's it's not terrible, but it's certainly not good. Like the mountains would be gone. The islands would be gone. Every time I get up in the morning and I see mountains in my curtains because of this verse, I say, praise God, you've deferred your wrath one more day. There's still mountains outside, right? Praise God. The wrath's been deferred another day. There's still mountains casting shadows, right? says here, they're gone. 
The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? And the answer is no one except those who have been broken, taken up their cross, and followed Christ. That's the only ones who will stand that day. No one else. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this picture here of Simon, and thank you for this picture uh, he gives us of what a true disciple is. Help us as a people to be disciples who are compelled by your nail-pierced hands, who will bear your cross daily, disciples who will follow you behind you in your suffering. Lord, help us to never be a people who are smug and convey to a lost and dying Carter County, East Tennessee, and United States and world that we somehow are smug with everything figured out and to come to Christ just simply means that. May we be a people who convey the correct spectrum of sorrow for mourning of our sin, for the battle that is there as we take up our cross. May we be a people forever thankful for your wrath deferred as you give a little more time still for us to show the world the goodness of who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now is the time to know him. It's not by accident you're tuning in and watching online or you're here with us physically today. Won't you make sure of these things? You may not have all the answers, but you can have this answer whether you have Christ or not. Or if you're here today, you want to learn more about our church and being a part of it through baptism or transfer, I'll be in the back to start that conversation as we sing. Please stand as we sing in response to the Word of God preached.